Well, today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, 19 through 20, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And just be prepared, I'm coming in hot with a whole bunch of Old Testament names at the start here. So here we go. Uh, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, who was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, this fall, we're studying the Old Testament using the narrative lectionary and capturing some of these great stories of God and His people in the Old Testament. And last week, uh, Matt preached on the golden calf incident, and the way that the lectionary goes is we're skipping forward quite a bit. And so, uh, since the golden calf incident, you know, the the wandering in the wilderness has taken place, the the crossing into the promised land, the conquering and settlement of the promised land, but then we got into this period that's, that's captured in the book of Judges. And it's a period of, of great anarchy, of chaos, of violence, of, of division. And that book ends with these ominous words where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if we were reading the, the Jewish Bible, actually, First Samuel would follow right after those words. Um, but, but in the Christian Bible, we get Ruth. It goes, Joshua judges Ruth. If you remember, you're, you're remembering the books of the Bible at any point in time, that we can at least get to Joshua judges Ruth, First and Second Samuel, Kings, the numbers get mixed up then. But, but, but we get Ruth as this nice story with a happy ending uh, about Ruth and Boaz, and we're told that this led up to the line of David, but not in the Hebrew history. It goes, boom. From it was chaos, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, to the story of First Samuel and the story of Hannah, which begins not with a happy story, but a sad story, not, not with, with good news, but with sad news. And it's a time in First Samuel where we know that the nation of Israel, it's not a nation, it's divided. There's no one in charge. There's mistrust between the people. There's this constant threat of enemies, both foreign and domestic. And so they were living in what we might call, what they might call these uncertain times. And I've come to loathe that phrase as it's been thrown around by everyone in the marketing, because how can you capture a situation of chaos and of fear and really do justice to it? You know, when we, when we talk about these uncertain times, that word uncertain seems to be a euphemism. It's doing a lot of work for us. It's a polite way of saying what we might want to say, which is in these expletive times. But it's a family service, and so we want to keep it PG. But we know that, 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 that if we were to go into 1 Samuel, they would have said, in these uncertain times, there was a certain man named Elkanah. Now, times were hard, they were bad, they were bad, especially for Hannah. And her story begins with bad news, because it says that Hannah had no children. She was barren. And barrenness in the Bible, it connotes hopelessness. It means that the future has been cut off. And so our passage today takes us for a time of, to a time of great uncertainty and trouble for God's people. It takes us into both Hannah's deep personal pain and a, a, a catastrophe on, on a national scale. So a national catastrophe, a personal struggle. The Bible speaks to both, and I think that's what's so beautiful about the Bible, is it speaks to the, the broader tumult we can find ourselves in, but in the very personal ways that we struggle as well. God has a word for us today, if we can relate to living to him through a moment like this, these uncertain times. Now, before we go any further, it's important for us to know that, uh, what Hannah's name means, because in the Bible, names are about so much more than just, you know, a label we stick on a person. They have a deep symbolic meaning. The Puritans captured this in the way that they used to, to name their kids, and if you ever look up some of the old Puritan names, they're good. Some of them survive, like Chastity or Constance, you know, those are good, and, and, and some of the other ones don't survive as much as well, but I mean, there were some like if, I mean, I saw one Puritan name, it was like 15 words long. If Jesus had not died for our sins, you know, Johnson, 
or something like that. It doesn't quite fall off, 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 off the tongue. But, but the Puritans got it, that your name meant something. And so Hannah isn't just Hannah, but it means grace. And so here, in this first chapter of 1 Samuel, we're going to learn a lot about what it means to live with grace and what a grace-filled life looks like in the face of pain and what a grace-filled life looks like in prayer and what a grace-filled life looks like in praise. So pain, prayer, praise. Those are the aspects of a grace-filled life I want us to look at this morning. And so first there's her pain. There's Hannah's pain. And it's clear from the text everywhere that, that this pain is related to her barrenness, the fact that she couldn't have any children. Now, we know in our culture we can relate to the pain of childlessness. Maybe you've experienced it or you know someone who has experienced it. But in, in traditional societies like that of Israel 3,000 years ago, childlessness, it, it meant more than a psychological pain. Because children weren't a want, they, they were a need. In our day, you know, it's not a strange question at all to ask couples, well, do you want to have kids? Normal question. You can ask that question in polite society. And people can and do say, I don't know, or no to that question. And just as an aside, I'm a big fan of people who can have children, of them having kids if they can. But that question, well, do you want to have kids, would have made no sense to Elkanah and to Hannah. Because kids represented the future. You know, they, they, they were your legacy. They were how your name continued to live on. And they represented not just hope for, for posterity, but all kinds of security were wrapped up in children. Economic security, because they provided you with more laborers to work on the farm, and, 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 and you didn't have to hire out workers to help you with the harvest. And, 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 and kids were security because, you know, not many of them, or, or a large percentage of them, didn't survive to adulthood. And so the more kids you had, the better chance you had to have a, a larger brood that would grow into adulthood. And they were social security because they were who would take care of you in your old age. I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the, the modern marvels of the world that we invented this thing called social security that gives you an old age pension. Because you think about before that, people without kids, without family to support them, they, they were one of the most impoverished group of people in the world. And so kids would take care of you as their responsibility when you were no longer able to work and you were economically useless. And then kids also were, were literal physical security. If your tribe or your clan or your kinsfolk had more kids, that meant that when another group came and threatened you, well, maybe you had some more, you know, fighting age men in your group. And the bigger that group was, the more secure you were from outside threat. And so, you know, it was just simply math. The more, the merrier, the safer, the more secure. That's just how society and civilization worked. And so this barrenness then, this, this childlessness then, it, it didn't mean just psychological pain alone. It, it didn't mean just not getting something that you wanted, as real as such pain is. And I don't want to downplay that pain at all. Hannah knew that pain, the psychological pain that we are familiar with. She knew that very well. But it also meant not getting something that was deemed necessary, essential by culture and circumstance. And so Hannah's pain, it came from, from this place of feeling worthless, purposeless, and being reminded uh, by Peninnah and her husband, despite his kind words, of her worthlessness, her purposelessness. And every year when they went to Shiloh to worship, and this was supposed to be a time of feasting and of celebration. You know, this was like Thanksgiving for us. Every time they went there for this joyous occasion, she was reminded of that. 
And every year it seemed that Peninnah had another child. There was another mouth to feed. And, and when we think about sacrifices in the temple, we have to keep in mind that this kind of celebration, it was like Thanksgiving. It was like a barbecue. Yes, some of the, 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 the sacrifice that you offered, the priests would get a piece of it, but then your family would get the rest of it. So you'd have this great feast, this great meal. And so it's a barbecue. And, you know, every kid that Peninnah has, that's another portion. That's another mouth to feed. And Hannah's portion, and the Hebrew here is actually very difficult according to the commentary, so it's kind of an educated guess what Hannah's portion meant. And actually the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament says that she, though Elkanah loved her, he gave her a single portion. So there was something about that portion that was special. Either, you know, the secret ingredient was love. Elkanah saying, I love you even though I'm giving you a single one, or it's, got, it's double. But something about it, even though it's special, reminds her of her status of what she doesn't have. And her pain is evident from her weeping, from her wailing, from her refusal to eat. And so at the root of her pain, though, is this. It's that she believes the lie. The lie that she is worthless. The lie that she is purposeless because she doesn't have children. The lie that she is less than because of what she doesn't have. And it's easy for us to sit here 3,000 years later and we can tisk-tisk at, at an ancient patriarchal society. But we too live in a world still where that lie that we are less than is alive and well. All of us have felt it. All of us have believed it to one degree or another that there is something about us that makes us unworthy of being loved something about us that makes us less than God has created us to be. And it's behind that lie that all of our searching out after idols takes place. And what's an idol? It's the good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. That we put in God's place, in God's stead. But what grace teaches us here, grace in the midst of pain, is that even when the lie hurts, we don't have to accept it. We don't have to keep on living as if it were true. Hannah doesn't answer Peninnah's taunts, nor does she respond to, to Elkanah's consolation. She says nary a word to either one of them. In the midst of such deep pain, grace teaches us what to do. And our passage says that after they had celebrated the feast, Hannah arose and went to the tabernacle. And that word for arose, it's a powerful one because it's not just a word about changing your posture. It's not just about physically standing up. It's about getting on your own two feet with a plan and with a purpose, with an intention in mind. It's not just standing up language. It's new beginning language. It's transformation language. It's resurrection language. And so grace teaches us what to do in the midst of our pain. It says we don't have to accept it. We don't have to sit with it. We can get up. We can do something about it. We can take it to God. Because here's the truth in pain, and this is a truth that many of us can attest to, that pain paradoxically is not often a barrier to God, but it's, but it's a pathway to Him. It's not something that drives us away from Him, but actually draws us to Him. And, and, the, and the story of Hannah, that's, that's her story. That's the story of grace. And so God's grace gives us strength to arrive even in the midst of our pain. And that's Hannah's pain, which brings us to Hannah's prayer. Now, at first blush, you might think, okay, well, Hannah's prayer reveals that she still believes the lie because all she's doing is she's bartering with God. She's saying, well, if you give me this, you know, I need this still. 
that she still accepts that until she has a son, she's truly worthless. But, 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 but if we, all we see is that we're missing what Hannah is actually praying for and what her prayer actually says. Because yes, she prays for a son, but she does not pray for a son for herself, but for God. Her vow is that she will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, she says, and not a razor will touch his head, which means that that he's going to be what's called a Nazarite in the Bible. And that's basically like someone who's set aside to be a lay priest, to help out um, uh, with the priests as, as, as they do the sacrifices and worship in the tabernacle. And so her vow was that if God would give her a son, this son would not be for herself, but for God. And that shows just how much grace has changed her heart. She no longer believed the lie that she needed a child to be somebody. She was already that in God's eyes. She didn't need a child for her own purposes, but for God's. Her prayer is not being about being selfish. It's about sacrifice. It isn't about her getting something, but it's about her giving something away. That's what grace does in our hearts. It, it, it changes, it shifts our entire perspective. So that we stop thinking about, you know, building our own little, little kingdoms or about our own insufficiencies or lacks. And instead we start thinking about God and his kingdom and his plan and his purposes. And it was because of what Hannah was willing to give away, what she was willing to give up and hand over to God, that her son Samuel, he becomes this amazing bridge between this world of the judges where there's no king and there's chaos and everyone's doing it right in their own eyes to this world of the kings and the kingdom and the glory of the monarchy of David. It's Samuel who becomes a spiritual leader who's able to unite the people. And it's he that anoints Israel's first two kings, Saul and then David. So the story of God's anointed the story of the Messiah, it starts not with great men, but with a great woman. A woman who was willing to take her pain to the Lord. And who was willing to sacrifice her deepest desires on the altar in order to serve him. That's grace. And what's remarkable is that even before her prayer is answered, even before this is fulfilled, her vow has a chance to be fulfilled, Scripture tells us that she changed that she got done praying and she ate. And these words are beautiful. It wasn't our reading, but it says, because her face was no longer sad. So she was content even before God answered her. It's just astonishing. And that too is grace. And then we learn that she, she, she conceived and she bore a son. And when he had been weaned, she brought him back to the temple to fulfill her vow, to turn him over to, to Eli, who was the high priest serving at Shiloh. And her response to that moment is captured in this beautiful song in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 10, which was the end of our reading, and it's called Hannah's Song. Because grace has a song to sing, and it's filled with these grace notes. And so Hannah's song, it, it starts with, with what God has done for her. She says, you know, my heart, my horn, uh, my mouth, my enemies, I rejoice. So praise is personal. Praise is testimony. When God acts in a powerful way in our lives, the most natural thing we can do is to sing. And that's probably one of the things that I hate the most about COVID, the era of COVID and congregational life, is there's not congregational singing. Because the natural thing to do when we gather, because God has called us and we hear the gospel, we want to sing at the top of our lungs. And right now we can't do that. And so I hope we keep that in mind as we go forward into the future. What a gift 
song is. And I hope there's some research that comes out that with a mask on and socially distanced, singing is a low-risk activity. Once, as soon as that becomes a definitive uh, consensus, we'll do it again, you know. If you know any people who are studying that sort of stuff, uh, please, please, person, I would love to know that this is safe because I miss that. I miss being able to do what Hannah does. And so her song, it starts with her own experience, but then it, it quickly shifts its focus to God, God's, God's character. And so the emphasis of Hannah's song, again, it's, it's much more on, on the giver rather than the gift. And what the song tells us about, it tells us about God, both God's power to transform this situation and his willingness to do so. And both are essential when we think of God because, you know, power without a desire to do anything good with it, it's, it's mere caprice. And, and a willingness to do something with, without the power to do so, it's, it's sentimentality at best. But what we learn about God from Hannah's song is that God is a God who reverses things. He's a God who turns things upside down. He's a God who takes a barren woman living in shame and exalts her. He takes a broken woman living with pain and he gives her joy. He's a God who takes a story that begins in tears and has it end in a song. That's just the kind of God he is because God is a God of justice. He's a God of righting wrongs. He's a powerful God who listens to the powerless. He is the king of creation who listens to the groans of the enslaved. He is the God who has established the pillars of the earth that keep us from sliding into chaos. And this song that Hannah sings, it contains more meaning and more truth than she ever could have even imagined or understood. And it closes with these words, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, when she sang, there was no king, there was no anointed, but her son, this son, Samuel, would anoint Israel's first king and Israel's greatest king, David. But even in this song, there are pointers to great David's greater son. In verse 8, she sings, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. But these same lyrics, I love them in the King James Version, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. So the dust heap and the dunghill, those were the places outside the city walls where only the poorest of the poor would live and would work. It was where all garbage and human waste was disposed of. Every undesirable and unclean thing was placed out there. And it's still in, in the world's great slums of today, Cairo, Manila, you think of these uh, Delhi, these places with you know, amazing inequality and poverty. Um, in these great slums, the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, they still live and work in those places, in those slums. But Hannah's song says that God will take even those people who are filthy and despised and untouchable, and he will make them inherit a throne of glory. That's grace. And we know that Jesus himself, he was crucified outside those same city walls, not too far from where the trash was burned and the human waste was disposed of. And he died naked and despised, utterly empty and impoverished. And he has been given a throne of glory at God's right hand. And he has brought miserable sinners like me and like you up from the ash heap and the dunghill and has given us a glorious inheritance too. 
He is amazing grace incarnate. Grace that enters our pain. Grace that reverses our situation. Grace that gives us strength to stand up to say we don't need to take what we're living in anymore, but we can take it to God. Grace that transforms the world. Grace that brings justice. Grace that can't be earned but only received. Grace that can take a despondent woman like Hannah and fill her with joy and make her happy. Grace that can take a divided people and make them one. Grace that can take the brokenness of this world and all that is ugly and make it beautiful. And grace that can give us a song to sing. You know, it's, it's November 1st. Yesterday was Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. And in the church calendar today has always been All Saints' Day or All Souls' Day, where we remember the faithful who have gone before. And I know many of us, if, if we're Christians, we know those faithful women and men who have gone before us, who have been an inspiration to us, who have transmitted this beautiful truth to us, and we have a responsibility to pass it on to the next generation. But on this All Saints' Day, let us remember Hannah as a woman filled with grace who has much, much to teach us about grace and action in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our prayer, and in the midst of our praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for your work in the heart of this woman, Hannah, today. God, might we learn from her what it is like to live through the difficulties of our life that we're facing. Give us facing, Lord, give us the grace where we are frustrated, where we are chasing after idols, where we are feeling less than, to stand up and to give that to you, to bring our pain to you, to pour out our hearts to you, God. We don't have to take it anymore. And God, we pray that you would change us so that we would be willing to to, to sacrifice, to surrender over to you that which is most precious and valuable for your kingdom's purposes. And God, I pray in a very real way that soon we would again be able to lift our voices in song together because that is what we have been made to do. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.